Second listeners, um, this is a brand new pod. This is a this is the pod that was promised. Really, like this is one that's been out there for almost six months. Sarah, does that sound about right? I think that's about right. Think, and at, so, yeah, at West I hope by Midwest, it, I think I talked about it right. Anticipation has probably been building. That's you right. know, this is Sarah Shady, public philosopher. Um, why Sarah Shady, public philosopher? Why is this a good idea for a pod? Oh, because uh, oftentimes people think of philosophy as just abstract thinking, um, you know, no relation to the actual world, but that's not true at all. Philosophy has always and, and should continue to exist for the public good, for the common good. Yeah, and I kind of think like, you know, like my, my father-in-law is a, he's a doctor, he's an MD, but you're also a doctor, right? You're, right? you're Dr. Sarah Shady. And like, just like he has a, a like practice, right? Shouldn't shouldn't doctors in philosophy have like a private practice that people can come and exactly you know, ask you know, their questions to? It reminds me of a cartoon I saw years ago. You know, like someone in a supermarket announcing that there is a metaphysical crisis that need to be cleaned up on aisle six. But <laughs> you know, that's part of my regular job is that is to help think through things and solve problems. And it's one of the reasons why we encourage students to be philosophy majors right. because we know that the problem solving skills translate into any is, job is that comic also kind of funny because philosophy majors end up working at grocery stores though <laughs> you know i worked at a grocery store that that is part of my past i you know so yeah there might be some truth okay. to that but but there's not is... truth that that's what a philosophy major leads you to exactly right no. what does philosophy lead you to uh, you know, most of our students go into practical fields rather than the academic route. A lot of students go into law. We have a lot of students in business and marketing, um, thinking creatively, analyzing culture, doing problem solving. Uh, we have lots of students working in the field of public policy, again, being good critical thinkers and problem solvers. So, yeah, it could it's, do a lot of it, things. What's sort of like about humanities majors in general, and I think philosophy specifically, is that when we talk about humanities majors, we talk about sort of what we talk a lot about skills and what it prepares you and and how it how it builds you as a person um both as an attractive job candidate but also as a person but i really i mean i really do think of somebody who has studied philosophy who reads philosophy as i mean it really is a way of life yes like it's a it's a it's a way to shape your worldview and probably continue to shape your worldview. And it's interesting because I don't even necessarily think about the ways in which my life is shaped by philosophy, but often friends um, will ask me philosophical related questions or, you know, even at our um, small group that we're part of with church, a regular question will be, okay, but Sarah, get, like help us think through this as a philosopher or, mm -hmm. Can you be the philosopher now who helps explain this concept or explain why something matters? So when you when you do that, how much do you? Um, I'm trying to think how to say this. Like how much? So if I were to ask you a, a question, um, sort of generally out of life that had some sort of philosophical or ethical bent to it, and you were proposing an answer or a way to think about it. Are you the type of person, or maybe what does it mean to be the type of person who's inclined to, in the process of giving that answer, name drop? 
Like, the, oh. is that like a kind of philosopher who names drop? <laughs> like, because you could say like, here's a way to think about it, or you could say, here's the way that Kant thought about it. Right. Like, that's a very different. Oh, totally. Way of being. My style of public philosopher is not name dropping. So for the for our listeners out there, you do not have to have a prior experience in philosophy to have a philosophical conversation with me. In fact, I think that's one of the biggest obstacles that people have to, to philosophy that they think, oh, but I've never read those guys. I, if I tried, I wouldn't understand them anyways. No, that's not the point. I like to think of philosophy as a skill set um, that helps us address problems. And the more, you know, if, if you're taking philosophy classes and you're reading philosophers, those are giving you ideas of how people think about things and different methods. But to do public philosophy, no, you don't. I'm not going to name drop. All right. So so here's actually, we're, we're on air producing since this is our first episode, and we haven't really talked a lot about the show. Um, here's something I want to do at the end of each show is have a separate segment where you just get to name drop. Because as we talk about things, like I actually would like to know uh, who's like three or four philosophers we could read who could help us think about this. Oh, that's and we could do that as a, apart from the actual conversation so it's not... You know, kind of the hoity-toity, like you know, as right. yeah, yeah, because because I think that that's helpful. So here's one one more question before we get into our topic for today: How can we spot a philosopher in the wild, like just in <laughs> life? Like, how, what are the what are the the tip-offs that like? Oh, you're a philosopher. Okay, so you know there there's the stereotypical ones. If we go back to Thales, one of the pre-Socratics, there's a name the- drop. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Now we can count them, <laughs> but he. Uh, the the legend goes that he was so deep in thought he died because he just walked off a cliff one day. So there is that stereotype. So Wiley Coyote and, style. Yeah, exactly. Did, did he so, have to acknowledge the 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 fact that there was no ground under him first, or you know? And I I think if I remember correctly, Thales was the person who who uh, thought that the world was fundamentally made of water. So maybe he was just going home. Mm-hmm. Like water was the sure. most off a cliff into the ocean. <laughs> um, that that's a way to go out. Uh, you know, it's funny. Because because uh, people who know me or follow me around, you know, even my kids know in the parking lot that mom may not always be watching out for cars. So, you know, they'll kind of put an arm in front of me to get me to That's stop at a funny. certain point in time. Or, um, you know, I, I struggle with technology. You'll often see me talking out loud at the copy machine, trying to figure out how to make it work. But um, my colleagues, you know, Dan Yim, Ray Van Ergon, Paul Reisner, Carrie Peffley, they'd be rolling their eyes now because they don't struggle with those difficulties. So other telltale signs of a philosopher. We really interested in definitions. So you okay. ask us a question and one of the first things we're going to do is say, well, let's break that down a little bit. What do you mean by sure, fill in sure. the blank? So okay. they, they like definitions. They like to break questions down. Um, philosophers tend to be pretty so- Socratic. So every question gives birth to another question. I just name dropped again. Sorry about that. That's cool. No, but it's all right. (laughs) I like the name drop. So I'm not anti. I'm just wondering. So, yeah. So um, the... the, Plus, I don't think Socrates counts as a name drop. Okay. Because I think he's just like part of the air we breathe (laughs) in the West. Of course. Yeah. So, you know, uh, questions are good things and we love to ask questions and any answer to a question is only ever temporary because it's going to beg another question. So that's another telltale sign. Um, 
uh, strategic thinking, you know, kind of a, a lot of philosophers will, you know, even if I'm thinking about how to plan my day, I have like backup plan B, C, D, and E to that. And I'm always trying to figure out which is the logistically best way to navigate through any situation. Do philosophers tend to be optimizers instead of like this? Or I guess some are probably pragmatic, right? But, uh, but I mean... Uh, is that is that what a philosopher is often doing is trying to think of like not just how to do something but what's the best way to do it? Yeah. And but you can't ever quite find the best thing, so you're in a perennial search for it. Okay, okay. It was interesting then is I've never thought about the connection between if that if that in fact is a hallmark potentially of a philosopher, the connection between philosophers and engineers. Um because mm. when I was in the year before I came to Bethel, that summer, I worked in a factory, a glass coating factory. And uh, this is the one I learned what an engineer was because there was this big machine that we worked as. I mean, it's, I feel like this is like a 19th century, like industrial revolution thing. Like there was a big <laughs> machine that we were all worked in service to. And it was, it was sort of covered. So like it was a mysterious thing that we put stuff into and stuff came out of. And like n- nobody really knows what happened inside. But, but if anything, anything foreign made it inside, it was a really bad you know, it was a black box, basically. So at any rate, though, but the, the, the engineers who worked for the company, like, they would appear periodically trying to make it better. And and, and, and making it better often meant how can we do this with less human beings working here. Um, but it is sort of an optimizing. And I remember yep. thinking, like, we kind of got a good thing going here. Why isn't this good enough? And the engineer was constantly saying, but but what about this? And could we make it better? And um, so so that I think about engineers that way. And maybe philosophers are like that, maybe not in the sort of physical sense of optimizing, but in sort of our approaches to things. Absolutely. The kind of analyzing how something works for the sake of thinking about what can I do with that knowledge once I have so it. So sort of worldview engineers, maybe? Exactly, wow. exactly. You know, and that's kind of interesting to think about because we have a fair number of students who double major in physics and philosophy. And I've always kind of wondered why, but that, you know, <laughs> both are studying fundamentals about reality, but I think maybe there's some ways of thinking that, that figure Do you think if you well. rebranded as worldview engineers, you guys could get a nice new space here with like glass walls you could write on? And I stuff. bet we could a because <laughs> at that point we are pre-professional. We're, That's we're like right. Pre-professional <laughs> major, right? Very, very. Yes. Nice. So our topic for today uh, is, and, and I guess the, the, the overarching idea of Sarah Shady Public Philosopher is to take a question that's sort of out there in the air and these things can be lofty or they can be they can seem trivial but to sort of use the tools of a philosopher to kind of dig into a big question yes um and the first question that we want to talk about on on our uh, on this episode or the question we want to talk about this episode actually applies to something that you've spent a lot of time on not directly but um but in, in a in a different context um so this was it this summer or was it this fall um uh, both okay mm-hmm uh, I can, I'm, I'm as the historian. I'm forgetting right. dates and when things are happening here. Uh, but I mean, the big debates around uh, Confederate monuments, Confederate mm-hmm. memorials, and sort of what role should they have in American cities and American memory? What function do they have? Um, now, you have, and um, you've spent time uh, in a different country looking at other other cultures who are wrestling with their past and wrestling yeah. with monuments to complicated and problematic pasts. So mm-hmm. um, tell us yeah, about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm deeply interested in um, the concept of public memorials and monuments 
because they tell stories, they're never neutral. They, they weren't created to be neutral. Um, and often the stories that they tell um, can change over time, or over time we get multiple stories coming from a monument. So um, several years ago, I was on um, a research trip to South Africa, where eight North American scholars and eight scholars from various countries in Africa were sent to South Africa together to study the role of religion in South Africa's emerging democracy. I did not go on this trip thinking about memorials and monuments. I actually signed up to study um, issues of xenophobia related in South Africa with um, an increasing number at that time of Zimbabwean refugees um, moving into South Africa and a lot of violence against those refugees. But there was one day when we were uh, touring monuments um, around Pretoria, the capital, and the very first one that we went to was called the Voortrekker Monument. And that's a monument to... Um, the, uh, that celebrates the conquering of the Zulu people by uh, the Boers. And so kind of putting this in an American context, it's a, it's a pioneer story over the indigenous people. What story. does the word Vortrekker mean? Um, so Vortrekker would be the Dutch word used for like pioneer. Okay. So, um, so you had Dutch settlers living in the Cape of South Africa on the coast, and then they moved northward. Kind of if you, so instead of it, we think of it in westward movement. Um, in the United States and South Africa, it would be northward movement, northward movement. But to take over, you know, that land, the, the land wasn't empty. It was occupied by di different indigenous people groups. And so this particular monument talks about a war um, between um, the Boers and the Zulu. And so there's a huge limestone monument there, museum, and you can go inside of it and you see paintings and tapestries that tell um, one side of the story of what happened there. And it tells the story of the victors. So um, in those images, you'll see... Um, uh, you know, the, the European women and children hiding behind their wagons and being attacked by these very savage looking Zulu. And so the story that's being told can lead to the narrative of, of, of a vindication, right? This was the right thing to do. We brought civilization to the area and we uh, killed the savages who were trying to, you know, harm our people. So when, when was the, when was the Vortrekker monument built? Um, that's a great question. So these wars would have happened in the early 20th century and, uh, we can, we can fact check this later, but I, my memory is that the monument is built in the 1930s. Okay. So, so it's not, been around for a long. Okay. So it's, it wasn't long after the events though. Correct. Okay. Not long after the event. Um, and it still stands today. Um, as a place where um, uh, Dutch um, South Africans, um, Afrikaners, will go to celebrate their heritage and have heritage festivals there. Um, so putting this in the context of the day that I was in um, South Africa, after that, we and so the Vortrekker monument kind of sits on a hill and then there's a valley and on the other side of the valley is a new monument called Freedom Park. And um, Freedom Park is a huge park covering many acres and several different um, outdoor 
exhibits or sculptures and monuments are held within Freedom Park. And I'll just backtrack for a minute a little bit on the history of that. So um, as listeners may or may not know, South African history involved a period of apartheid, which was um, forced segregation of... um, of white South Africans over um, black and indigenous South Africans um, and uh, based on premises of white superiority controlled, you know, limited access to education, to resources, um, to black South Africans, to legal rights and protections. And apartheid came to the end in the 1990s. So it's a pretty recent story. And so South Africa, after the end of apartheid um, and under the leadership of Nelson Mandela, um, developed a new constitution. And it's actually it's a beautiful constitution. It has one of the most extensive series of human rights of any modern uh, democracy's constitution. At the end of apartheid, um, there was something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And Desmond Tutu was heavily involved in that as a way to think about how do we as South Africans heal from our past and allowing people to um, Uh, receive and offer forgiveness for the harms done on both sides. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, had a subcommittee whose job was to decide what do we do with monuments around South Africa because we have a lot of monuments that are very harmful um, emotionally, psychologically, socially to be getting to think about ourselves as a united um, united country uh, across our different... um, ethnicities. And the Vortrekker Monument is an obvious example of that. It tells one side of a story. And with the end result of that commission's findings was for the most part not to tear down monuments. Instead, their idea was to build new ones that would recontextualize the old ones. So this takes us back to my walk in Freedom Park. So picture walking along on a path in Freedom Park um, and seeing different monuments, one that celebrates uh, the the names of all South Africans of all ethnicities that died in wars, one that celebrates tribal heritages. And being on this path, and in one spot, when you look across the valley, you can see the Vortrekker Monument. Except now, instead of this huge monolithic building, it looks very small and very insignificant. And it was in that moment that I really started to think about monuments in terms of the power of the stories that they told. Um, And so this is where I've become really interested in these questions um, to think about what are the messages that um, monuments tell and how do we take some of these concepts from a South African way of dealing with them to an American context. So I know, Sam, I want to bring you back into the conversation. I know that you spent some time after college living in the South. Mm-hmm. And in your experience there um, around different monuments and memorials, like what were some of the stories maybe that were being told about Southern heritage? Or do you have any that, any memories that stand out to you? You know, what's, what's funny is I don't have... Um I don't. I don't have a lot of memory. So I was in Mobile, Alabama, um, and the 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 main. Mo- and now this this is partially being like a liberal northerner going south. Like the main monuments that are not even monuments, but like historical sites that I went to when I was there. Um, we did a, a. I spent a weekend in Selma. Um, so I was on a in a, on a Catholic volunteer program, and like there's this like underground community of people on 
volunteer programs like Teach for America that like I'm not the most like socially connected person in the world, but I realized by joining one of these programs, like I would get random calls from people in other cities being like, Hey, do you want to get together? Because we don't, we're not from here either. So I went to Selma cause there was a group of folks who were uh, in a program in new Orleans who are connecting with folks in a, in a program in Selma. Um, so like we walked the city, we walked the city of Selma, we walked across the Edmund Pettus bridge and, um, and we, you know, together watched the eyes on the prize episode about that first and then walked in and like, that was, I'm, I'm a big fan of walking in the footsteps yeah. of any history to sort of understand even the, like, this sounds weird, but like the arc of that bridge. So like when you're on one side, you in fact can't see the other side of the bridge mm. and things like that. But I don't, I don't remember much in terms of specific, um, Civil War stuff yeah. uh, or Confederacy things other than definitely for some of the students and, and all of my memories have to do with with white students um, being being Southern was their identity, yes. which was foreign to me um, growing up in Minnesota. The uh, most of the people who are our age from Minnesota, like we can trace our heritage back to immigration pretty recently, mm-hmm. you know, like late 18, late, excuse me, yeah, late 1800s, early 1900s. Almost all of our people came at that point. So like, we don't have a lot of roots here. So, uh, so for example, my, my, um, the town I grew up in our, our like local festival, it wasn't even around a particular heritage. It was just called heritage days. And they would each year they would pick, Oh, we have people from France. So we did like French heritage one year and Irish heritage one year and, you know, and other things each year. So like, but that was a really, uh, growing up in Minnesota that we talked a lot about what your nationality was, even though you've, you and no one you knew had ever been to Ireland. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm Irish or I'm right. down there. I remember asking students about that and they looked, they gave me the weirdest looks like, they, they didn't have a concept of that, and they would just be like, well, I'm Southern. In part, I think it's because they come from older stock, people who've been here longer. So tracing that heritage back is a lot more difficult. But it's also, I think, part of their identity. Yes. Um, so, I mean, between that and then, obviously, there was – it was not uncommon to see Confederate flags, I think, was the most – you know, I, I remember um, – because uh, I, because I taught ninth grade, you know, people would write on the desks and things like that. So I remember walking up to one of the desks at the back of my classroom and someone had drawn a Confederate flag and, and wrote the South will rise again, which, yeah. I mean, yeah. Like that was just, a, that was not an, but like, I, I also, this is my position of privilege. Like I look at that and I'm just like, I like that didn't even have like a con like, really? Like I, I, you know, I didn't think, I didn't think about what that, that just it seemed like the equivalent to a student on the next next who wrote roll tide it was like okay I, <laughs> right. Um, right yeah exactly but i think th- these examples are great because they're getting at the fact that the monument means something mm-hmm. there's a story that it's telling that's valuable in terms of its heritage and its identity i lived in south carolina i was a grad student at the university of south carolina during a time period, and this is in the early 2000s, when the Confederate flag still flew from the top of the state house. It was taken down during the time that I was there. Um, and, and, and I think one of the challenges that we think when we think about public memorials within the United States is we don't have a history of having a good way of dealing with this. On the one hand, so... So these monuments have a very powerful story for one group about that group's identity and that group's heritage. Um, and that's 
important to them. And there's also a very harmful side of these monuments um, and flags and symbols to another group that was enslaved or conquered by um, this people group. And in the United States, we tend to err on one extreme or the other. Um, The keep the monuments up, and those of you who feel offended by them, too bad deal with it. This is my heritage. Or take them down and um, that offends you because you feel like you're losing your heritage. Well, too bad. Deal with it. So we have two extremes where somebody comes out a loser. um, And both of those extremes like actually help us avoid having a conversation we probably need to avoid because both of those moves are an attempt to erase part erase one story. You take the monument down because you don't want to talk about and engage that story. You want to make it go away. Or you leave the monument up because you don't want to talk about or engage the other side of the narrative that's harmful. So it prevents us from having to talk about it, which is a very American way of dealing with things, Mm -hmm. right? We don't talk about race. We don't talk about um, the history of the conquest of um, indigenous peoples. And so... um, So it was back in August of 2017 when there were uh, the now infamous marches in um, Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, about um, the taking down or removal of a Confederate um, monument. And so you had the Unite the Right marches that featured a lot of white supremacist and neo-Nazi views. And then you had counter protests. And as we know, some of those counter protesters ended up dying um, in the protests. So that has raised now a public question that's still ongoing about what should we do with these monuments? Um, shouldn't we take them down so that the um, they don't have power anymore? Or shouldn't we leave them up because they are a part of our history? And so one of the things that I've been really interested in as a philosopher is, okay, well, what other options are on the table? Um, what um, could we have a middle path? And that's why I find the path of... Uh, what happened in South Africa really interesting because you allow the one monument to stand because it is an important part of your history. And I think that there's a way that allowing that history to speak is an important story that we need to tell because even if it's painful, it reminds us of something. Does does the the Vortrekker monument itself also get re um, reinterpreted? Like if you if I were yeah. to visit the Vortrekker, would would the story that I learn now be different than it would have been in, you know, 1985? No. And that's one of the challenges because the monument itself is privately owned by an organization that seeks to maintain um, the Afrikaner identity. And although not explicitly stated, um, their um, embrace of that identity uh, they don't want to challenge that identity by hmm. telling another side of the story. So the monument only tells the side of the victor. It only tells. It, it does not problematize or ask questions about. And and there's those no actions. there's no interpret there's no interest in interpreting it or fleshing it out. Right. Okay. Right. So there's no off to the side other exhibit. There's no signs or brochures calling in question, nothing that's telling the other side of the story. Because it's interesting because this summer we went to, uh, we took our kids actually a couple times to Fort Snelling. 
and having grown up in Minnesota, like right. I went to Fort Snelling as a kid, and it was so interesting. Ann and I, when we when we were we kind of went through the tour, it was so interesting how different Fort Snelling is in 2017 than it was again 1985, um, because I don't remember. I mean, maybe they were talking about, it, but I don't remember them talking a lot about slavery at Fort Snelling because in 1985 that was something that happened in the South and we didn't really need to talk about that and that there were slaves there. We, we didn't either. We didn't know, or we didn't talk about it. And the same, the same with sort of the relationship to native peoples. Um, Like it's, it was part of everything you saw there um, because it was part of understanding kind of what is, what does it mean for, for America to come and build a fort here um, so it was, it was very interesting to go to the same places and have it interpreted very differently. But that's obviously not happening in a situation right. like this. Exactly. But I think that shows a possibility, right? So there are ways of using these monuments to help us tell multiple stories that help us understand and have a better, broader picture of the truth of a historical area, but also that help us think about how to live better in the present and in the future. And since the Vortrekker monument itself is not willing to contextualize, then the decision was, well, let's create kind of a counter Mm -hmm. uh, monument and we'll, we'll do the recontextualization of that in a different space, but that actually you still kind of, uh, you're only across a valley. So so in a lot of ways, you're really showing an alternative story and an alternative path just on the other side of the So valley. at Freedom Park, is there... I mean, you talked about there's several memorials, monuments. Is there... Uh, are there memorial monuments, anything to... Afrikaners? Yes. Um, Yeah. And I think one of the most powerful for me parts of Freedom Park as well is this area. Um, The best way that I can describe it, I mean, you can get on on the online and and learn on Freedom Park's website and see different exhibits. Um, But there's a part where there are um, names etched into walls. And it reminds me a lot of kind of like the Vietnam. Now mm-hmm. war memorial style um, and etched into those walls are the names of uh, victims who died in um, any war in South Africa mm. and that includes all people in all wars so it's a it's a very important moment to say we are all South Africans and so mm-hmm. you'd have Afrikaners who died you'd have Zulu who died you'd have Xhosa who died you know mm-hmm. um, and and it and it doesn't that monument doesn't make a statement about who was on what side because mm-hmm. we know that right. and there's other way you know there's other times and places for that but that monument says but we're all South Africans which is an important part of our story and when mm-hmm. we tear down one side or the other we lose our ability to think about about how do we figure out how we move forward together? It's interesting because they're in uh, in in northern France. And uh, there's I, I, I apologize, I can't think of the name of exactly where this is. But there's a First World War memorial that's one of the newer ones. It's called the Ring, and much like the Vietnam War memorial, it's a huge ring that has I think it's something like three hundred and sixty thousand names of people who are missing. But it's not. I mean, most of the most of the memorials there are like here's a Commonwealth cemetery, here's a French cemetery, here's a German cemetery. This is just 
human beings mm-hmm. who were who you know who were missing in the war um and that's it's very interesting to see that that there isn't even an indication of other than if you can tell the difference between a belgian name and a and a german name or something like you wouldn't know and right. maybe there are people on on both sides of that conflict with the same names you know so that that's 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 very interesting. Exactly. And I feel like this is an area of growth that we really have in the U.S. And for those of us specifically residing in a Minnesotan context, one of the biggest issues we don't often talk about or learn about is how do we move forward in a shared history related to Native Americans and um European and American settlers that now all live together on land that, you know, the majority of the land is occupied by people to whom it didn't originally belong. Right. And, and, and that's a story we often avoid um, thinking about. It seems to me the other, the other interesting version of thinking about a memorial and memorials probably is, 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 well, it's, it's, is the right word, I guess, but um, is the fact that uh, when we take students to Munich, what we yeah. do on the last day is we go to Dachau. And Dachau is still there, you know, and, and like one version, I mean, that, that's interesting because that is, that stands as a memorial to a, to a national shame, right? you know, and it's, you know, and it's, 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 you're meant to experience that. And like, I think it's so, it's so interesting because, you know, I guess in my head, I always pictured these things up that they would be kind of off in the wilderness somewhere, right. but like there's, you could buy concentration camp adjacent property in current day Dachau like like right now like there's houses right next to it because it's just there yeah I um, mean it's really it's it's fascinating to go there and um, it's one of the, the moments where I wish that I spoke German um, because when you're there you will see school groups of German students going there and I just want to know like I want to hear what their teachers have to say yeah. I want to hear what they're talking about as they're walking through it um, but that's a like that's a very very uh it's a, it's a very powerful thing to say. Um, this is another version of how we remember, and right. you know, and how we remember tragedy. Yeah, and I think you know, often those of us who grew up in the North, and when you hear you know arguments about Confederate memorials, we can have one image of Southerners as you know they're hundred percent unwilling to own the past and contextualize it, and, and that's not necessarily true either. You know, thinking about the the Fort Snelling. Um, model of of updating that story now a lot of um, the plantations for example that you can go and visit in the south will include a tour of the slave cabins and and tell that side of the story too on the plantation in fact i think that they're working on um, doing that to either uh maybe it's Monticello where jefferson lived or madison's mm-hmm. james madison's property is now adding an exhibit like that to say Right. This is all part of the story and we're going to have a better understanding of an empathy for this story if we really are able to sit with all sides okay. of it. But th- this then circles back, though, to um, these are all these things are great. But what do we do about v- memorials that seem to uh, not w- not be interested in the ambiguity? Yeah. You know, where, yeah. where it is it is celebrating um confederate generals things like that without being interested in the nuance of the complexity of that right and where, so where, where where it seems like the argument is well of course they're human beings so of course it's complex but you look at the you look at the memorial and it's like there, there's not really i don't see any kind of i mean this is there there is a an iconography to talk about someone as heroic and great 
And that is the iconography being used here. There is not problematizing iconography. Right. And so I think that one of the challenges that we have in American history, because American history is a story deeply rooted in racism and in supremacy of a white European uh, people group, whether it's a Confederate memorial, whether it's a Revolutionary War memorial, whether it's a War of 1812 memorial, whether it's a Pioneer memorial, a Dakota War memorial, right? We, we have to make a choice of if we're really going to take down monuments that um, valorize a harmful position, we're going to be left with almost no monuments mm-hmm. in the United States if we're really going to do that fairly and justly. And so I I would say the better route is, and, and if there's a monument and the town or the group, whatever, doesn't want to recontextualize it, then I think we think creatively Freedom Park-wise. Like, okay, so then how do we make a nearby, you know, retelling of the story? Or how do we, um, you know, work in... Uh, raising attention to the other stories that aren't being told by the memorial. But if we just tear them down, then we also, over time, forget that that story existed, which also then means we um, forget that we need to tell the Mm -hmm. alternate story as well. Yeah. (laughs) So I would say... um, I would say that a better way to move forward, it, it, I let me say this, there may be memorials that should be taken down because of what they, I'm not saying every memorial is a good one. And I think over time we can think um, more inclusively about new memorials that we build and how we have them tell a story. But uh, my default position would be try to recontextualize try to um, provide alternative voice or alternative memorial before tearing down. Well, and there, and there are ways to, there are ways to capture, I mean, if you're, because, because there's also the, the, the sense of like, well, so, so is the eventual goal that every patch of earth will have a memorial, if, if you, if you can't tear something down, right? <laughs> right. Cause, cause I mean, we, we tear stuff down all the time. Um, like, like it seems like there are ways to also, I'm trying to think like, how do you, how do you remove something and still say, but we still need to remember it and yeah. remember it in all of its complexity? Like, like we actually live in a world now where you can, you can capture the ephemeral, right? right. You can, you can, you can photograph and film and digitally scan these. Yes. Things. So it's like, so, so it's not going to be forgotten that there was a memorial to Robert E. Lee here, mm-hmm. and so we can, so we as historians and scholars and people who are interested in that can say. Let's actually take a look at this and let's think about this. And, and just because it's it's no longer physically there doesn't mean that it doesn't doesn't exist. But then we can contextualize it that way too. You know, I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because we only get to tell so many stories. I mean, there's only no. like 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 there's only so much land. So we're choosing <laughs> which stories we are going to remember. Yes, and I think we're going even- to celebrate because because in fact a memorial is well celebrate's not the right word um, uh, recognize in a in a very uh, Help me out here. What am I yeah. trying to say? Like, 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 what does it mean? I guess maybe that's a question, right? What does it mean to have a memorial? Like, to, right. that we're because there's all kinds of history we don't choose to have a memorial to or to 
to honor or to remember or, you know, or recognize. Yeah, yeah. it's giving, I see it as it's giving a voice to a story. And a monument is an attempt to give a permanent voice to a story. Um, And I think what's the problem with that, though, is is isn't it isn't it the right argument to say every voice is every voice is important as we're trying to remember things. So then it's like so then we still we still land on a memorial to everything, which then if everything's a memorial, then nothing's a memorial. Like, like, like we don't actually do that. And we actually don't believe that. We don't believe right. that. So, so how do we make the choices we may, we should make? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think one other theme that I want to bring in here that may give us something to think about, um, is the role that art can play in all of this and the role of public art, um, and public artists. And so, um, and I'll give a shout out here to our Bethel colleague, Michelle Westmark Wingard, who, um, went on a similar trip to South Africa. And that's what her group was studying, a group of artists from Africa and North America studying the role of public art in South Africa. And, um, and in her own work, then Michelle has used, um, the idea of public art as a form to address monuments to the Dakota war here in in Minnesota. And so I think um, there are other types of media and other venues we can use to continue the conversation without the without erecting a, a monument in the traditional sense. Yeah, maybe maybe the problem with what you said was the permanence part. Mm-hmm. Because why should why should it be permanent? Now, I, I, I want to actually present something that I think is interesting, which is um, one of the great monument parks um, in the city of London is Trafalgar Square. Right. Right. And, and it, I mean, there. This, so this is to the Battle of Trafalgar, to Lord Nelson, right, to the defeat of Napoleon. Um, and and throughout there, there throughout that 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 square, there are all there are monuments to other admirals and generals and things like this. But one of the cool things in Trafalgar Square at least for the last decade is there. So there's four corners and there's like major statues on each corner, but there's one corner that doesn't have a statue on it. And what they've done is, is I don't know if it's every year or every two years, there's a new statue put there that then doesn't stay there. So right. like one of them is now, I think in the sculpture garden at the Walker. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that like, like, like why do why do these have to be permanent? Why can't we say like, you know, every 10 years we're going to think about, we, we want we're gonna think about how we remember our history and our heritage and we can we can so so we can, so it allows us to do what human beings do which is to reinterpret and, we, and it's not like when something gets torn down it now is erased from history because that's not how it works yeah because there's lots of people who have died that are not erased from history right right you know? so like maybe maybe that's another way to think about how do we do public collective memory I don't yeah. know yeah no I think that's a really fascinating idea to think about um and, you know and, and and in some ways I think you know we're taking a cue from museums in doing this and you know in in terms of what's the rotating exhibit and when that's on a permanent spot like Fort Snelling you know but but to continually Mm -hmm. update the story Mm -hmm. of that particular place yeah yeah. So, you know, listeners to Sarah Shady, a public philosopher, you're going to, you know, I think we'll always end this podcast or towards the end of it, you're going to be feeling like you have a lot more questions than answers or maybe new ideas, but we didn't tell you what the right answer was. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. That's right. So if you have questions that you would like uh, Sarah Shady, public philosopher to wrestle with, uh, you can email them to s-mulberry at bethel.edu and uh, I will 
make sure they get to Sarah, and we'll uh, you know they may become the basis for a for a future show. So Sarah, before Sarah, before we go, um, it's time to name drop. Are there who should, <laughs> who, who should we be reading in terms of thinking about these questions besides Sarah Shady? Uh, yeah, so I think um, uh, I'm going to just name one okay. right now because that'll be something fun um, for uh, uh, you know an ongoing thing of if I name Martin Buber every time it's going right. to get old. Right, so right, I'm, right. I, even though you could read Martin Buber on this okay. topic, and I have written an essay on this topic utilizing Martin Buber, we're going to assume you could I, read Buber on most. Things, I so. am going to suggest Cornell West's book Democracy Matters. It's a little bit old in the sense that it was written um, during the time um, that George W. Bush was president. And so part of that book is not relevant to this conversation. What is relevant to this conversation is what West has to say about um, the limitations we have as Americans to willingly wrestle with our complicated past of race and imperialism, and that we're going to be stuck as a country until we are willing to do that and enter into the messy work when we don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be, but you've got to be willing to have the conversation. Fantastic. Well, join us next time for Sarah Shady, Public Philosopher. Take a bow, put the grime of